A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. The Minister for Education, Norma Foley, announces free antigen testing for primary schools with the scheme to be rolled out on or before November 29th. This, as the HSE's Paul Reid warns of unsustainable pressure on our hospitals and on Ireland's PCR testing capabilities. Yeah, this is certainly the highest level of impact and risk that we've had to manage uh, since COVID landed here. Also tonight, as the clock strikes 12, nightclubs and venues will close their doors as the so-called Cinderella curfew comes into effect. And our Week in Review panel look back over some of the big stories that you might have missed. Get in touch on Twitter. Our hashtag is TonightVMTV. This evening in studio, I'm joined by Professor of Experimental Immunology at Trinity College Dublin, Kingston Mills, by the Funaguel TD, Emer Higgins, and by the Sinn Féin TD, Pauline Tully. But before we speak to them, let's have a little listen to what the Minister for Education, Norma Foley, had to say earlier on as she was explaining the rollout of free antigen testing in schools. The parent or guardian of the child who tests positive, um, those parents or the guardian is being asked to inform the principal and the principal will inform the parents of the other children within the pod but absolutely no personal information, no detail uh, in relation to the child who is COVID positive will be released to the other parents uh, or, or guardians. The parents, the guardians do have ultimate responsibility and choice in terms of uh, the care of, um, of their children. Um, but again, I want to say that we have benefited hugely from such a proactive and positive engagement by parents and guardians. And I, I think they will be um, very positive in endorsing this. Um, I'll start with yourself, Emer Higgins. Um, there is some confusion this evening among parents as to how exactly all of this is going to work if the minister is assuring that there'll be no personal information shared with other pupils, which seems sort of impossible to do if you're going to tell parents that there's been a positive case in their children's pod. Yeah, well, I suppose that's that's in many ways what's happening at the moment is people are finding out that there's been a positive case in a pod and, and sometimes people are, are kind of making guesses or estimates as to, as to who it may be. But what we're trying to do is, is, is keep things as confidential and as anonymous as possible. And um, Many people have been calling for the rollout of antigen tests to schools for, for, for a while. And what this is about is it's about making sure that the antigen tests are there for the students um, who, who need them the most. So the people who are going to, who are confirmed close contacts or who are within a pod um, will be the ones to be given these. Do we know this evening whether a teacher, if also considered a close contact, fall into the same system where they're going to be given antigen tests or are they going to be referred on as a standard classic contact and then be sent for a PCR or anything else? Um, so not all of the details have been worked out yet. It's going to come into operation from the 29th of November. So there'll be a lot of information available, I understand, from the Minister for Education Monday or Tuesday of next week. Um, but, but I mean, it, it's, it's very much done on the same basis as we have been so far. So if you're a close contact, you're, you're a close contact. 
and we'll be asking you to take antigen tests. Uh, Pauline Tully, this has been something which is in the works for a while. It's going to be a complicated thing to work out, as Emer has just made clear, because you have to figure out exactly why it applies to teachers as well. Is November 29th soon enough for you? No, it's not. Um, I mean, there's been talk of antigen testing being introduced for, what, three weeks, four weeks now at this stage. It's very, very slow. There's no sense of urgency about it. Um, and leaving it off now until the children are, what, two, three weeks off their Christmas holidays is, is far too late. I mean, parents and teachers are under pressure since September, since the return to school, over, you know, how they should react to this. And I, I think the HSC have almost abandoned schools and let them have to deal with the, with the pressures of it. And the principals are unclear, not getting the clear advice that they need. So that's something that should be, should be given. So I'm hoping the clarification that comes early in the week will be provided. Uh, because schools need it. Uh, one thing that, that might urgently need clarification, Kingston Mills, is what the Minister just said there, that it isn't necessarily compulsory to participate in this, that ultimately the parent seems to be obviously the primary person responsible, and if a parent just decides not to play ball or not to pass on the names, then nobody will be any the wiser and you won't even know who to give the tests to. I think the first thing is uh, to say uh, that I certainly welcome this, um, um, the introduction of antigen testing in schools. In the last two weeks, there have been over 8,000 cases amongst the 5 to 12-year-old age cohort in Ireland. So that's a huge number of, of, of COVID-19 cases. Most of those are, are probably fairly mild and they're, they're not of huge consequence, but a small number will be. And of course, the, the children can also transmit it to, to vulnerable adults. So it is important that we reduce the transmission in schools. And I think this is one measure that will certainly help to do that. Is the 29th quick enough for you? Well, I know we, I was part of the Mark Ferguson testing group back in February and March that advocated testing in a, in a broad range of, of venues. You handed over your report, I think, in early April. One of them would have been in, in schools, so it is frustratingly slow, to be fair. So, uh, but I do welcome that it's now happening, and I think that it will be beneficial. Can you understand the reticence about rolling it out this much and the apparent reluctance among some in Neffet, particularly Tony Hulahan, that they might be used in the wrong circumstances, and that's why antigen needs to be treated with a certain degree of caution? Yeah, I mean, there, is, there, there are issues around... Um, people confusing what the benefit of an antigen test is compared with a PCR test. And a PCR test is, is the standard way of confirming the diagnosis of COVID-19. There's also concern that people would substitute antigen tests for that. But that's not what the intention here is. It's really using them in a context where you wouldn't use a PCR test initially, and then to confirm if it is positive with a PCR. So it's, it's used in a context where um, normally you wouldn't be testing, and we're not testing contacts in schools right now. So this is introducing something that is going to catch cases otherwise wouldn't be Okay, uh, I do want to talk about the rollout of antigen tests in, in Dole Aaron and some of the controversy that arose there today. But just before we do that, Kingston, just to pick your brain on the angle which has been taken by government that antigen tests shouldn't be given to the public in general free of charge because they might either be misused or generally because it needs to be a financial measure and they, they'd want to put it towards staffing resources. What are I, your thoughts on that? I think the subsidising them is a good, is a good compromise because it, three euro is, is a relatively modest price to have to pay it to, to confirm or, or to show that you're potentially positive and then have that confirmed by PCR. So I, I think that's reasonable. I think if you hand them out free, the, the potential for abuse of the system. And, Do you think there's been abuse in, in Britain where that is done and even north of the border here? Where yeah, I mean, the, the, the UK have spent vast billions on antigen tests for um, broad use of them. I think a targeted use is a much better approach in, in um, schools, third-level institutes, um, 
in businesses, industry, already, some, some businesses are already doing this without the need for, for, for government or, or HEA, inter, HSE intervention. So, so you know, th those are the obvious venues to use them in. Okay. One of the employers which is going to be rolling out the use of antigen testing, you just heard me mention, is the Houses of the Rock. So this has been the source of, of a little bit of confusion today. So maybe even before we discuss it, it might be worth clarifying exactly some of where the confusion has arisen today. Um, there is no suggestion that politicians have decided for themselves to give themselves free antigen tests. But what happened today is that there was a weekly meeting of the Dáil's business committee, the party whips, one from every single grouping in the Dáil, were told that the decision had already been made by the Houses of the Oireachtas Service, which is the employer, the administrative body that runs Leinster House, to roll them out to all of the staff on the complex, some 1,200 people. This apparently because there had been nine cases confirmed by PCR of people who live on the complex or who work on the complex last week, and at least one case where it is thought that that might have been transmitted on the campus. Now, where the confusion arises is that there were some people at that meeting who understood that among those who would be receiving the free tests would be the TDs themselves. That certainly appears to be the impression from the government whips, because they then wrote to the Crown Court saying, please don't make them free for us, please ensure that we are charged for those tests, which you presume is not a letter that they would write if they already thought that they were going to be charged for those tests anyway. You don't write a letter demanding something that you think is already the case. Nonetheless, the Count Corla interrupted some contributions in the Dáil to make clear that that was not going to be the case. He has told the Dáil today on the record that they'll be handed out for free to staff, but that if members want them, they will be billed for them. Emer um, Higgins, in general principle, do you think that TDs ought to be given free antigen tests, or at least that, do you no, understand any difficulty with the, the Oireachtas being an employer and anyone else not getting them? No, I, I don't think TDs or, or senators should, should be getting free antigen tests. Absolutely not. Um, what, what I do think is that a lot of employers are providing them for staff. Um, we're, we're an essential service that the Oireachtas and we have everything from cameramen and sound men and, and women to, to, to people who, who come in and work there on a daily basis. Uh, and I do appreciate that, that they should have access to free antigen tests as many people do. People working in food factories, in meat factories, um, third level education students in NUIG and UCD and UCC, we, we've been rolling out um, free antigen tests for, for some kind of essential workers, so if you like. Basically, are, you, are you saying then that everyone in the campus should basically be getting them for free except for you? <laughs> well, I suppose in some way I am, yeah. I, I don't believe that TDs and senators should get this. Absolutely not. I, I think we, we're, we're the lawmakers. We should be well, well, well within our, our rights and our means to be able to go out and do as, as, as the legislation requires and also to do as the government advice and the NEFA devices, which is if you're engaging in high-risk behaviour, to take an antigen test twice weekly at this point. Uh, Pauline, uh, would you expect to be getting free antigen tests given the nature of your work and the significance of it? And was this a little bit of a misreading of the room, even if it was a mistaken belief that TDs and senators were going to be getting them for free when others yeah, well, aren't. I don't think TDs and senators should be getting them for free. You know, and there was some confusion about it, um, but I was there when the Corla actually clarified what the situation was and he read out you know, what, what was going to happen. So TDs and senators will not get them for free, but the staff within the complex will. Uh, and is that appropriate? That's appropriate, Do you yes. think your staff should get them and you shouldn't? Well, my own staff, I would understand that I would uh, pay for my own staff to get them. That was my understanding. Okay. But the staff employed by the Houses of the Rock, this... Mm. Directly speaking, your staff are employed by the Houses of the Oireachtas, are they not? Yeah, but they work for me, but okay. I was understanding. That's my understanding now. See, one issue that arises with this, this might seem like it's very inside baseball, but I can't imagine, Emer, any other way in which your staff, so you have a parliamentary assistant and a secretarial assistant, as do you, Pauline, as does every other member. I've never met any of them, but I'm sure they're all lovely, very diligent workers. Indeed. Um, but if the, those people are to receive free antigen tests from the Oireachtas, I imagine how it's going to be done is that they're going to drop up a box of antigen tests to the office of Emer Higgins TD and to the office of Pauline Tully TD. And I have no idea how they're then going to enforce to make sure that Eamber Higgins' deputy and deputy Pauline Tully aren't going to actually use those tests for free anyway. 
I don't think anybody knows at this point how this is going to be administered, whether people are going to get them coming in into work or leaving work. No, nobody necessarily knows that. But what's important to note is that from midnight tonight, people who, who, are, who are able to work from home are being asked to do so. And that does include quite a lot of, of people who would traditionally be on the Oireachtas campus. Uh, if you are not getting an antigen test, then of course the official health advice is that if you have symptoms, you should already be bypassing an antigen test and going straight to a PCR. You might have some difficulty getting that because if you look to try and book a PCR test right now, you will find it very difficult. Earlier today at a weekly briefing, the HSE Chief Executive Paul Reid discussed some of the demand on the testing system right now. Our testing and tracing is under continued strain and people need to understand and work with us. The level that we are testing right now is beyond anybody's expectations uh, and we will continue to meet what we can and people should, if they are symptomatic, uh, should stay at home uh, awaiting a test. Um, Kingston Mills, do you think that there is enough urgency among the health administrators to try and maybe up the capacity? I, I know nothing can be magicked up overnight, but clearly there is a serious avail availability issue now. Loads of people have symptoms. Very few people are actually able to get a timely slot. And it's going to result in more cases getting out into the wild. I mean, the problem is that we're now at a nearly record high, uh, apart from the, the, the one peak of, uh, in terms of cases and in terms of tests. We're at a peak in terms of numbers of tests, around 200,000 in a week. And there is extra capacity through commercial firms helping with this but the problem is that we're not um, contact tracing and testing quickly enough so taking two if it's taking two days to get an appointment that's going to mean three days until you get a result of a PCR test that means three days missed opportunity of, of making sure and, 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 and if everybody rise into the isolation before they get the results of the test, that's fine. But I'm sure that not but everybody, everybody is doing that, and yes. that's the problem. Some people will accrue contacts even when they're trying to make their way to a test. Um, Imer, I saw a tweet this, er this evening from the chief medical officer who said that the latest Morrick survey, one which is periodically carried out by the department, that one in six people are now reporting that they have COVID or COVID-like symptoms at any one time. So that would suggest that there's something in the region of 700 or 800,000 people this evening who might have symptoms akin to COVID. Could just be a head cold, but it could be more, it could be RSV. To try and make sure that all those people get tested in a timely way, you'd need to have maybe twice the capacity that the state does. Surely we should be doing more. Yeah, and, and we are doing more. Uh, this evening it was announced that uh, we partnered with a private company that's going to be bringing on stream another 7,000 uh, test uh, appointments in Dublin. Week on week, we're going to be doing the same in Limerick and in Cork and in Galway. 193,000 tests are already being conducted every week. We had our, our, record, um, our record Tuesday last week where 23,000 tests were done. There's huge demand for this. Um, there's huge capability within our service and we're supplementing that now with, with a with extra resources from the external market, and that's what we need to do. Pauline, if the government is already going private and trying to pursue more private capacity, like what Emer has just explained, is there more that they could be doing? Are there venues that maybe should be available for PCRs? Well, look, the last few weeks have seen the, the numbers rising rapidly and steadily. Um, so, I mean, it, you know, they should have been quicker off the mark and getting more tests um, rolled out so that people can be tested and contracted. Because that was the, 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 what should have been done from the start, you know, and we're slow in the start. It, it was it improved a lot, but mm. we need to get back well, up like, there so again. For, in Berlin, for example, they now have streetside kiosks where you can basically walk up and get one done for free, and then you mm. get the results fairly quickly. I mean, I don't even know how you turn around a PCR as quickly as they're doing it, but they're doing it. Is that the sort of almost streetside availability we should be aspiring to? We probably should at this stage, yes. In order, you know, until at least the booster vaccine is rolled out, you know, and hopefully that will then see a, a decrease in the numbers, you know. 
and that, but there seems to be no plan or no urgency around that either. So that, you know that needs to be. Well, to just uh, come to come to Kingston on boosters in just one second, actually. But Emer, if we are um, pursuing private contracts for this extra capacity for PCRs, and you could argue it's it's absolutely the right thing to do. There's clearly a demand for it. Why is the state continually footing the bill for PCRs, which are cost thousands of hundreds or hundreds of euro rather a pop, when it won't offer antigen tests for free, and they surely only cost a couple of euro? Antigen tests aren't as reliable as PCR tests. We know that PCR tests are the gold standard and that's what we need to prioritise. That's what, that's what our people deserve. That's what we need to be able to do because that's the best way to accurately measure how much COVID there is in communities. And, and the facts are that right now COVID is really high in our but communities. When you are firefighting and you're going to, to, to spend so much on private contracts for more expensive tests, would it not at least make some sense as part of a complementary package all round. I think what makes sense is to be subsidising um, antigen tests, which is something I understand the government is going to be making an announcement on in the coming days. That's what makes sense because you need to make sure that people who, who want access to tests are given them. You want to make sure that people who, who, who are prioritised need to be, you know, if you're a close contact that's when you need to be prioritised. If you're symptomatic, that's when you need a, a, a gold standard PCR test. And that's what we're, that's exactly what we're providing. That's exactly what the government is providing. Okay, uh, Kingston Mills, I want to get your thoughts this evening on that NIAC advice that we heard about today, which is that those who receive the Johnson & Johnson vaccine will now be entitled to a booster three months after their one original dose rather than the five or six. The impact that that might make? Yeah, I mean, I, I will certainly welcome that um, announcement because um, immunity after one dose of the Johnson Johnson vaccine is not going to be up there with two doses, for example, of the mRNA vaccine. So th these people are more likely to get infected now. So um, boosting after three months is is certainly a good idea. But of course, um, there are other vaccines like the AstraZeneca where um, people uh, had to wait up to three months to get their second dose and some didn't get vaccinated until July. And then they, they're now going to have to wait until... And that's, that's a vaccine Christmas. which is known to be slightly less effective against the yeah. Delta variant as well. So, so they're, 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 they're being put in a vulnerable position between now and, and the new year, um, those that got the, the, the AstraZeneca late because of the five to six month delay. Do you understand then NIAC's reticence of this idea that they only want to issue boosters five months after the second dose or should they be a bit more ambitious on that? The reasoning behind it is the clinical trials of the boosters were done with a six month interval and um, they got approval on that basis and, 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 and NIAC are following that advice, which I suppose on the face of it looks sensible. But, but isn't it, there's real it, world data from the likes of Israel where it was done quicker and it seems to be There is indeed. Effective. And there's also uh, data from several other countries where they've done boosters quicker. And the, the, the side effects are, are not any greater by giving the vaccine at three or four months compared with giving it at six. Um, and the efficacy, longer gaps tend to improve the quality of the, of the antibody response. But the difference between four and six months is going to be minimal. So in my view, I think four months would be um, three or four months as they're doing with the Johnson Johnson vaccine would be sensible also for, for the other vaccines. So I, I, don't, I don't see the reason why they would do it for Johnson Johnson and not do it for the AstraZeneca, quite frankly. OK, I'm afraid that's all the time we have for now. My thanks to Pauline Tully, Emer uh, Higgins and Kingston Mills will be staying with us because after the break, as of midnight tonight, nightclubs are shutting their doors. Would it actually have any impact on the rise in COVID cases? Don't go away.
Welcome back. Now, they're calling it the Cinderella curfew, which comes into effect in around 97 minutes, I think, as nightclubs nationwide will be shutting their doors at the stroke of midnight. But will it actually have an impact on COVID cases, or is it merely a sign of some more restrictions to come? We're still joined in the studio by the Professor of Experimental Immunology at Trinity College, Kingston Mills, and by the Fine Gael TD, Emer Higgins. I'm also joined in studio now by the owner of Tramline Nightclub and Venue in Dublin, Ian Redmond. Um, Ian, you told uh, our colleagues in Virgin Media Newsroom yesterday that ordinarily your business model is to open from 10 and to shut it three, mm -hmm. you've now just moved it from seven to 12. What has the reaction been like from your own patrons to that? Well, we won't really know until after the weekend, but uh, tonight uh, we had sold 950 tickets for tonight before the announcement by Anthishak on Tuesday. Um, as of five minutes ago, there was 750 people in the venue. Whether we get another 100 more, maybe there might be 100 no-shows, but there's 750 people in the venue, and we'll be emptying the venue from half 11 till 12 in compliance with the new guidelines So they bought the tickets expecting that they'd be able to stay there until 2 or half 2? Yeah, and in, in total, we had 11 requests for refunds, which we refunded. So, uh, And that, that would be normal on any given night. There might be 5 to 15 requests for refunds, so nothing out of the normal. But what we are noticing is ticket sales are slower for Friday, for Saturday, for Monday and Thursday. Thursday are big nights next week. So we are very, very concerned. We have 55 staff members who have bonded like a family have bonded. You know, nightclubs, it's not like working in a bar. It's like there's a production value. There's um, DJs, there's lighting technicians, um, makeup, there's sparklers, there's everything, and cocktail mixologists. So it's a real family. It's like a theatrical production. And to pull that staff uh, apart, you know, it'd be devastating for them. You know, they've formed a real bond over the last few weeks. And to just say, like disparaging comments uh, from the ministry yesterday, Mr. Humphreys, that, uh, you know, uh, that they can just go and get jobs in other places. Sure, there's loads of jobs, but like their heart and soul is in this. It'd be like telling yourself, Kevin, to go and get a job at some other station. You know, it's, it's just not really nice the way the, the message was delivered. So um, we're very, very apprehensive about next week and whether we can continue. Uh, Emer Higgins, um, Ian's outlet is far from the only one that's decided to move its hours forward. I've seen Copperface Jacks, among many others, now decided that they'll just open at six to make sure that people get a, a full night in before they close at 12. Assuming that that's what every outlet will do, and it, it seems like a fairly sensible, creative solution from anyone in Ian's position, then what was the point of doing it? Well, the point of doing it is to help reduce socialising. What we're looking to do is reduce socialising by between 25 and 50%. Um, and I suppose the combination of changing the, the, the closing hours of pubs and restaurants and, and nightclubs, the combination of that, uh, along with, um, I suppose, the, the messaging coming from government that, that we all need to reduce our social contacts, we do expect that to, to help. But we if do you already have high attendance in a venue like Ian's yeah. and his tickets were sold on the basis of people getting a full night in there, it's not really going to make a difference, is it? All you've done is basically have have nightclubs opening on Reykjavik time instead of Dublin. Well, you've, all, you've also heard Ian outline the, the concerns that maybe that won't be the case going forward. We do expect socialising to, to reduce, and that is the ambition here. If it's not, then we're going to have to relook at things, absolutely. But the ambition is that if we can reduce social contacts, and working from home is a huge part of this as well. Remember that from tomorrow, there'll be thousands more people working from home who won't have those contacts in work. That if we're all in a position to reduce our social contacts, as we ramp up that booster campaign that, that, that Kingston has spoke about, we, we, we could could well be able to weather this out by, by doing that and that's what we are hoping and um, we've seen in Israel the effectiveness of that booster campaign where they've gone where they've gone from having their fourth wave quite early because obviously they had their vaccine rollout earlier than us to, to, to write back down in terms of case numbers that's what we're hoping to achieve over half a million people okay. have already received uh, that Kingston based on the data are nightclubs the right sector for the government to try and sort of curtail or snip back a little bit by bringing them back to midnight or is the likes of telling people to 
work from home actually a more effective way of doing it? In my view, whether you're open from 7 p.m. to midnight or, or 10 p.m. to 3 a.m., it makes no difference in terms of the transmission of COVID. So, so we either shut them or you leave them fully open, in my view. Um, this halfway measure is neither here nor there. Well, to be fair, like we, we, did have, um, we did have pubs and restaurants operating on reduced hours up until October 22nd. People weren't saying shut them or shut them or, or don't let that happen. And um, that worked quite effectively. Obviously, since then, we've had a huge increase in numbers. We had 1,888 was the number of cases at that point in October. We're now up to 4,650. We do have, have to row back, and this is a row back to where we were uh, in, in October. We, we put 22,000, 18 to 25 rows through our doors over the last four weeks. Not one member of staff, not one of 55 on our payroll this week have called in sick due to a temperature or any sort of COVID symptoms. Everyone coming into our venue, they're, they're fully vaccinated. Um, their COVID ID checked, their passport government ID checked, and Eventbrite ticket checked to make sure that all those three pieces of data match. So I am 110% confident that everyone coming into our club, into Tramline, is fully vaccinated and safe. Our staff are safe. They love it. Like, to see the smiles on these young people's faces, they haven't been able to do this. They've missed a rite of passage over the last two years. And we have to look at the mental health of this, uh, this age group as well, because they've just been, they've been put aside and now they're enjoying themselves. The workforce, is the, they're the same age and also at the, um, the customers. They're what? just having fun. And it's just going to switch to house parties. They're even talking about tonight when they leave Tramline or going back to people's houses. They'll meet up with people who aren't vaccinated. So it's, it's absolutely mm. illogical. That, that was an argument two, mm. two months ago as well when, when case numbers were much lower. Mm. Uh, and I think we do have to give this a chance. I mean, if this doesn't work, fine. But we do have to give this a chance but because what we want to do is we want to protect both lives and livelihoods. But Ingrid, before October 22nd, nightclubs weren't open and then shutting at half 11. So there wasn't this sort of like Al Capone bro land where suddenly you had people who pubs. had been in a venue who well, needed somewhere pub, to go. Pubs were. The reality is pubs were. So we had people leaving pubs doing exactly what, what we're saying people may be doing now. But what we had was much lower rates of transmission. I'm not blaming pubs. I'm not blaming nightclubs. I'm saying the facts are transmission is much higher now. Cases are much higher now. Hospital numbers are much higher now. ICU numbers are much higher now. Well, we have to act. Emer, how is it okay for 52,000 to be at the Aviva, again, Ireland v Argentina, this weekend on Sunday? and no COVID passports being checked. How is that safe? Uh, Were people walking through tunnels using urinals and toilets together and bars together indoors? Well, to say it's just outdoors, it's not. Allow me to ask that to, to Kingston then. What, what's the difference then between having 52,000 people, albeit mostly outdoors, but all using the same indoor corridors and toilets? As, as a person who has a ticket for that match, I would have preferred to go to the match had everybody been vaccinated and everyone taken an antigen test the morning of the game, quite frankly. And I think Leinster Rugby took the lead on this when they introduced um, COVID certs for attendance at all of their matches. I can't understand why the IRFU didn't do that as well. But um, I, I don't fully agree with Ian on this. Um, transmission indoors is certainly a lot easier than it is outdoors. And I know that people go to the toilet, but there's not, a, you know, 900 people in, in, in a packed room. It's very different than being in a stadium. Well, we, we, is, we've, is, we've is called on government to, to, to look at ventilation, and it's just been cast aside. Yeah. We've spent an awful lot of money on our mechanical ventilation when we built our venue four years ago. And we even went to Leinster at over Halloween to put webs on the ducting so you could actually see the airflow. It's so fresh, the air in the venue. It changes at X 
In, in fairness, uh, and actually, you, you make a, a good point there because the example that you gave of your, your own 55 staff and not a single one of them has had to call in sick for the four weeks that you've been opened, is it uh, perhaps in illustration, Kingston, that as long as you have all the right precautions, including ventilation, that actually the sector it's, maybe is... It's very dangerous to make uh, conclusions on the basis of, of one um, scenario. So, I mean, the bottom line is that people congregating without wearing masks in an indoor venue contributes to transmission of this virus, bottom line. And I agree with Emer, the numbers have gone up significantly now. We're in a different place than we were six months or, or six weeks or eight weeks ago. Um, we, we, we're at, running into a situation where the hospitals are going to be in trouble. The numbers in hospitals are, if they're not already in trouble in some cases, the ICU admissions are getting close to capacity. We have to put a break somewhere. So you have to look at the situations where transmission occurs and it occurs indoors. I agree with Ian that the house parties are part of this. And if you look at the transmission right now, the highest case numbers are in the age group 19 to 24. Mm. And, and not all of those are vaccinated. In fact, there's about around 10 to 15% that are not fully vaccinated. So they need to go and get vaccinated. We need to implement COVID and certs. If they're, if they're not allowed in a nightclub in the first place, then a house party is where they're going to go. Exactly. So we need to use COVID passports more liberally in every venue for every, whether it be a, a rugby match, um, a nightclub. Or a coffee shop. Or, or, or a coffee shop, indeed. I agree. So, and, and that needs to be extended also for, for, for events where you would pay a substantial amount of money to go, such as a concert or a rugby match. You also introduce um, antigen testing of the, the morning of the event. And I think if someone pays 70 euro or whatever for a ticket, they're going to pay the other three or five euro to have an antigen test and then everybody feels safer but not necessarily into a nightclub where you're paying eight to ten euro yes yeah, a, a different nightclub. scenario they're not going to pay seven to eight euro for an antigen that's test. why i said the, the events where they're 70 agree, where they're paying yeah. 70 euro I agree, yeah yeah uh, Ian, when you were originally told that you were going to be allowed to open on october 22nd and there wouldn't have been any restrictions at all that was originally based on the idea that we thought we'd already be over the peak that would be on the, the down low so that if there were other activities which were considered to be riskier like for example and i don't mean any disrespect but nightclubs are considered to be one of the riskier ones that it would then be safe to do so. Then we were told that the models were changing and that we knew this, this situation was deteriorating and that we weren't going to be over the worst on October 22nd. And with all the greatest respect in the world to you and everyone else who works in your industry, in hindsight, was it not maybe a little bit reckless to allow a sector like yours to reopen when the situation was getting worse? Well, we just waited and we waited and we waited and we were patient. And when we had the green light to go from Antishock, October 22nd, we went for it. So whether it was reckless, we went by NEFID advice and government advice. So uh, how can we be reckless when we're just following government guidelines? Are you scapegoats now? Absolutely, yeah. Like we're convinced that we'll be shut next week because they were trying to close us in a, in a roundabout way so they could cut our EWSS and our CRSS. And uh, and now that we found a workaround to get our our customers into our venue, they go, no, just we actually really meant that you should actually close, but uh, will you actually close now? So that's how we feel that they just delivered the message wrong. Emer, uh, how likely is it that they will be closed next week? My understanding is the restrictions that, that have been announced over the last number of days are, are, are what's there for the foreseeable. Um, Antonishta today said that things will be re-evaluated um, perhaps in two weeks' time and, and we obviously need to keep monitoring this. It's an evolving situation. We need to keep on top of it. Um, so I, I can't make any, any promises or guarantees. All I know and all, all of us know from experience is COVID is unpredictable and we need to be able to flex and adapt our plans to, to, to be able to fight it on every front. Kingston, when Emer said that it was for the I heard you scoff. Well, I mean, we only have to think back to last Christmas. They opened the gates, they opened the doors. 
everybody did what they wanted to do. And what happened in January? The explosion of cases, the most severe lockdown we've ever faced. Do we want to go back to that? We certainly don't. Absolutely not. We do not. So we have to introduce the measures now that will prevent us having to go into a lockdown in January. And that is easing back. And that, if that includes closing nightclubs, so be it. Ian, after not trading for 20 months, if you're then made to shut your doors again next week, prospectively over the Christmas, what does it mean for the sector as a whole? It's a disaster, but if we're told to do it, we will do it, and we would hope that the supports would be put back in place. And in fairness, Antonisha did a great job in putting a supreme package of measures in place for us uh, that kept us uh, the, the chance to reopen, and we opened really, really successfully. Okay. I I raised that in the doll today, actually yeah, yeah. standing up for workers in your sector, mm -hmm. and I do believe that we, we, we need to do more to support. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We certainly hope that it does work out for everyone. Ian, thank you for joining us. We'll leave it there. My thanks to Kingston, to Emer, and to Ian. And uh, after the break, we'll be looking back at the week in review. Don't go away. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome back. Now it's time to take a look at some of the other stories of the week. My panel in studio, showbiz reporter with the Irish Daily Star, Sandra Mallon, the author and former Fianna Fáil Minister of State, Conor Lenehan, and legal affairs editor for the Irish Independent, Shane Phelan. And Shane, I want to start with yourself because there was a fairly significant, not a ruling, but advice today from the European Court of Justice, which all concerns the prosecution of Graham Dwyer. You might bring us up to speed. Yeah, I don't think anyone thought in 2015 when Graham Dwyer was convicted for uh, the murder of Elaine O'Hara that he would in six years be at the centre of what's proving to be one of the most significant EU data cases ever. Um, so uh, Graeme Dwyer, uh, he successfully challenged the law under which uh, his uh, mobile phone uh, data was seized and uh, uh, accessed by the Gardaí. Uh, he did that in 2018 and the state appealed. Uh, the issue has gone all the way to the Court of Justice for the EU and what you had today is another step in that process where is a very significant legal opinion given by this advisor to the court. Now, this is a precursor to the court. So it's not the ruling. It's, it's not the, the ruling, of an advocate but it's, it's, the it's usually quite a good guide of what the ruling is going to say. And in, in, in this uh, ruling, the, uh, or sorry, in this is opinion, <laughs> advice, yeah. uh, or advice, the advocate general, uh, the Spanish advocate general, he basically uh, uh, made a lot of findings which are quite helpful to Dwyer's case. So he, he essentially found, look, uh, the Irish law, uh, or the law as it operates in Ireland, is general and indiscriminate. It's not compatible with EU law. In fact, the only real situation where you can uh, operate a system as in Ireland is for uh, cases involving uh, uh, national security. It doesn't apply to, to criminal cases, even serious ones uh, like murder. So um, 
it's, the, the law is clearly invalid as far as, as he is concerned. Now, obviously, it's a fairly complicated situation because you have a Supreme Court ruling in Ireland which has now been sent back to, to Europe and is now going to come back to Ireland at some other point. Yeah. It is still your assessment that there, there are still many other hurdles that Graeme Dwyer would have to clear before he could ever clear his own name. So when the European Court rules, that will go back to the Supreme Court and it, in effect it kind of boxes the Supreme Court in, uh, narrows their options and what they can um, <clears throat> what they can find. One of the things that they're um, probably going to be unable to, to do is to limit the effect of this. So we could see that the, the Supreme Court in Ireland wanted to put what they call a temporal limit on things. That would probably mean that they didn't want to have a retrospective finding that Graham Dwyer could use uh, in a separate appeal that he has. Uh, Graham Dwyer is likely to get the bounce of the ball there and he will be able to go then to the Court of Appeal and argue in the Court of Appeal, look, um, the law under which my data was seized uh, you know, it was it was invalid. Um, my trial is or my, my conviction is unsafe. Where um, uh, the real fight will take place then is is over. Uh, I believe it's going to be over uh, uh, an issue that arises from a previous Supreme Court case okay. called JC. Now, in that uh, case, the uh, Supreme Court uh, na narrowly narrowly found that um, just because. Um, or, sorry, if, so basically, if, 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 if evidence is obtained... If the evidence upon which you are convicted is obtained in contravention of the law, that it's still... In contravention of your rights, yes. It can still be admissible, provided that the illegality or the, uh, the, the way it was obtained was inadvertent. Okay. So that's something that the state could right. argue here, the guard, that, that the guards basically... They obtained this under the laws it was at the time. Okay, so the saga clearly has a, a lot to run. Um, Conor Lenham, we were talking before the break with the previous panel about the management of COVID and the, the slow introduction of, again, of further restrictions, everyone suspecting more could become. Um, where does this leave the government in terms of its political authority over the whole situation? Well, I think there's a huge risk to the government's authority and indeed ultimately its popularity and its prospects of being re-elected because it is a three-party coalition and often when you have a coalition of this kind, as I discovered when I was writing my book on Albert Reynolds, you know, if you have a lot of programme managers and advisors inputting in a kind of two-party or unusual coalition, it's almost by definition a recipe for, for instability. I believe the uncertainty in the communication function has undermined an awful lot of what we might call the worthy work of this government in mm. terms of trying to cope with something which I suppose no other governments have tried to cope with before. Uh, when you but, say the communication function, what do you mean? Where are they falling down? Well, you know, today or was it yesterday you had a, a situation where the antigens were going to be too expensive to buy. There would be, a, you know, presumably Minister Donnelly was saying on the radio that you know, there would be some element of pay mm. required for people if they were introduced. And then you have the doll saying they were going to supply it free to Doyle members. To, to and staff, you know, and that sort of communication of really doesn't help. You know, people are quite cynical. I think if you read the public mood correctly, you know, at a street level here in Ireland, people are very, very frustrated. You know, at the, at the kind of slowness of making a decision in relation to the measures being envisaged and then never getting quite full degree of certainty as to what's going to happen next. For instance, there doesn't appear to be a plan. There's what we're hearing tonight from some of the government representatives is, well, we'll review it in two weeks' time. So a lot of people, you know, business depends on confidence well, and certainty. They, they would say that they, they can never give people those commitments because you never know what's going to come. But I did want to ask you, because you, you have some frontline experience of what it was like the last time that Fianna Fáil were held responsible for a disaster and the shellacking that they got. 
there's a bit of a theory. Uh, sorry to bring up old wounds. Uh, <laughs> yeah, there is a theory right. that long if, ago. if there were to be another lockdown or, or another thing as significant as we've already been through again, that Fianna Fáil's authority and any trust that it has with the public would be shot forever. Well, electorally. I, I think it won't be just Fianna Fáil. I think Fianna Gael have, have, there's evidence that Fianna Gael has been falling in the recent opinion polls as well. I think they're handing a great victory to Sinn Féin here, the main opposition party, because they're really doing quite well and, and, and rightly calling to account the government parties to communicate much better and make it clear and give people a sense of a plan. I mean, it really is quite perturbing that if you talk to half the people out there, as I did before coming in here, Tad, half of them kind of feel that the place is going to be locked down for eight to ten weeks in the run into Christmas. But that's not good for business and it's not good for people either. People need a degree of certainty. And of course, you have to be able to respond and change uh, where change is needed in, in the public health interest and that. But, you know, if you look at other issues like the antigen, the uncertainty over that, and even the usage of antigens. I mean, some mm. of the public health advisors were saying these were useless and are no good, mm. yet they've been very well deployed in the UK and, of course, in Sweden. So, you know, why aren't we rolling them? And the same with the booster. We're behind, way behind in the booster. You know, people had plenty, you know, given what happened last year, coming into this period, the government had plenty of time to plan this one out and it doesn't appear to me that they have planned it. Uh, whenever we are making the 2021 edition of um, Don't Look Back in Anger and we try to edit out all the COVID stuff, basically all that will be left is Garth Brooks mania because the tickets are going on sale again next Thursday morning. Sandra, um, it is only officially speaking two dates for now, but we are likely to see dates three, four and five very quickly, aren't we? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I bring better news to the table, I suppose, tonight. <laughs> so he has confirmed finally, first thing this morning, that press release came in 9th and 10th of September. But Garth is actually flying into Dublin on Monday. So, oh, so we get new B-roll. We don't have to look at that same yeah. picture of him with the baseball cap We'll get new images. So, uh, um, I mean, it is expected that the three dates, the other three dates that have been approved by Dublin City Council already will be all his. Um, we don't know yet what he's going to talk about on Monday. It'll be a small press conference. Um, but, I mean... There's no doubt he will be playing the five nights in September. I mean, that is suspect. Do you think the saga from last time and all the five nights will actually create even more demand this time that there'll be people who have FOMO and actually yeah. want to go even if they didn't want to? I think so. Like that's a really good point. Like in 2014, it was it was a it was a mess, but now it's full steam ahead. You know, there's some people that aren't happy. Like I spoke today to a few people from the Crow Park Residents Association um, who aren't happy with it. But the majority of people are. I know friends of mine at the time that did have tickets were so looking forward to the concert that even today had texted me saying you know what kind of you know freebies can they get out of me like can I get the tickets first for them um no was the answer but to that but uh, so the like I think definitely yeah it won't be such a kind of a but there will be a massive demand there for the tickets and I, I think he, he will sell out five nights every day. I already have family asking me to be on Ticketmaster yeah. next Thursday morning <laughs> not looking forward to it um Shane the, the Graham Dwyer challenge isn't the only major case that's that's underway involving Ireland in Europe not at the ECJ this time the European Court of Human Rights and some Irish politicians who have concerns about the role of God in the Irish yeah, Constitution. I mean, Garth Brooks might be going ahead, but this case certainly isn't going ahead. Um, you have some fairly Garth prominent... Brooks thinks he's God. <laughs> maybe he does. Some uh, fairly prominent uh, political figures uh, here have an issue with um, the, the oath that the, uh, the President has to take. Um, uh, some of the wording um, includes, you know, may God direct and sustain me, and uh, they, you know, they, 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 they basically take the oath in the presence of Almighty God. Uh, so you had uh, the likes of the Social Democrats co-leader Roisin Shortall, uh, Fergus Finlay, of course, from 
uh, formerly of Bernardo's and uh, a, a previously a government advisor, Sinn Féin TD, John Brady, uh, Senator David Norris, uh, who had a tilt course at the presidency, and mm. uh, the Trinity Chancellor, David McConnell. They were looking to take a challenge um, uh, uh, to the various articles of the Constitution uh, in this area, the ECHR threw it out, basically said it was inadmissible because they had to be directly affected by the impugned measure. So basically... And none of them could put their hands up and say that they're atheists or that they'd be directly affected. Or yeah. did they have to be elected as president well, before they could take the Well, it would seem to be, the the, you know, you'd almost have to be, uh, you know, selected to yeah. be president or in the Oris. Uh, to, bring, to bring the challenge. There so, is, there's uh, a similar oath for members of the Council of State, which I know that Eamon Gilmore, when he was taunished, had to take, and that basically meant that he, as an atheist, had to also affirm and ask God to direct and sustain him when he was joining on. You, you can argue that the maybe the Constitution is a little bit outdated. It is a big issue for a lot of society. people, uh, Gavin, and I know, like, Roisin Shortall hasn't given up the ghost. Uh, I saw her quoted during the week saying, look, you know, mm. uh, a referendum's needed on this, and, you know... Uh, you know, she might be driving the wagon on that one. Uh, Connor, it might be the sort of thing that might eventually get put to a referendum, and I can't imagine it would be a very easily passed or a very uh, contentious free campaign. I, the idea of removing the role of God from the Constitution. I, I, I know it was proposed many years ago by the Progressive Democrats at one of their conferences uh, to take God out of the Constitution. I think it was a man who sat, sits now in the, in the Supreme Court, Gerard Hogan, who was one of the people who was promulgating that mm. at the time within the Progressive Democrats. It, it was very controversial at the time, but that was 20 years ago. I suspect if somebody came forward with the referendum suggesting that references to God would be taken out of the Constitution, I think most people would be, uh, I would say, tolerant enough now and to accept that. Because really, when you look at it, if you are a functioning atheist or a humanist, you know, mm. and, and somebody who is yeah, not... Say, of course, it's not just atheists, it's anyone who belongs to any other faith other well, than a Christian one. <coughs> well, it's God. So, I mean, one could... T technically say that God covers a lot of mm. things, but any other non-Judeo-Christian yeah. tradition would, would, could, could be within yeah. their rights to feel that this is slightly offensive. I suppose the only alternative in the meantime for anybody who's thinking of going for president is to take the devil air option and say that they were swearing an oath to the, to the crown, which they believe to be an yeah. empty formula. Effectively, it is an empty formula, but it probably is, it is a good idea, I think, of Roshan Shortall to say, to come forward and say we should tighten this up and put it to the people because uh, I don't think there'd be a big backlash against it. I think we're as diversified as we'll ever mm. be uh, in diversity terms in Ireland now, and I think people would see the sense of that. Uh, do let us know what you think on that. The hashtag, of course, as always, is tonight VMTV. Um, Sandra, it is also Christmas party season. I think it's only less than 40 days away now before Christmas party season. But already there's been a real flux of people cancelling their events, and possibly understandably so, because if you're not supposed to be in an office, maybe you're not supposed to be seeing your colleagues I around something that isn't a water cooler. I know. Can you believe it? I mean, this time last year, I think we were talking about how eh, next year it'll be fine, you know. No Christmas party last year. Mm. We'll be fine now this year. And now here we are again, having to cancel the Christmas party. So... Um, look, we've been told to restrict our social movements and it would be a bit kind of madness to sort of meet up with Christmas gathering and be out till whatever time. Um, and, you know, given the high numbers that are out there at the moment now. So it's kind of a personal responsibility at this point. But the other flip side of it as well is the amount of businesses that are going to lose millions of euros. Like already in the last few days across to the papers, they've covered like in-depth um, the amount of businesses that have cancelled 40 and 40 and 50 corporate gigs in because you know, it's a very lucrative sector for those who are catering to it's massive now so um you really have to feel for those businesses out there 
Connor, do you think we're ever actually going to get back to full Christmas party season again if we're going to be looking at seasonal waves of this virus for as long as we're going to be all around? One of my views is that, you know, we, if we had a, a consistent plan instead of a kind of a stop-go approach to this, we could allow people to advance. If we were using antigens, if we were using testing much better, we would be able to do as the UK has done in Sweden, get people and get the economy, which is the important point here, mm. people's lives. Because Sweden has just now decided to, in the last couple of days that it's going to introduce COVID passports for indoor events at more than 100 people, which is probably a lot of Christmas parties anyway. Yes, yeah. But I mean, I think really what we need to focus on is getting things as close to normal as possible in relation to this particular virus. It won't disappear. I remember talking to a very good friend of mine who's a kind of a leading authority in, in virology at the very outset of this. And, you know, that the, the vaccines aren't going to solve it. They're only effective up to a point. Uh, the lockdowns are clearly ineffective. So we, we have to manage our way through this. There will be variants of this virus for the next five, six years, possibly. You know, So uh, what I'm saying is that we need to plan to get the population back to work and to, as close as possible to normality in social terms without going crazy yeah. at uh, those parties. Shane, are the Christmas party still going ahead? Um, I'm waiting for word, actually. <laughs> uh, uh, if, we, if you have to figure out exactly where our Christmas party is going to go, I think we've got about 55 minutes before we're allowed to still go to nightclubs, so maybe we all better pack it up and let it go there. Uh, Shane, Connor, Sandra, thank you all very much. That is it from us. Our programme, as always, is available as a podcast on all major platforms. Our next news here on Virgin Media One is in Ireland AM tomorrow morning at 7 o'clock. And don't forget, of course, all podcasts of all previous episodes also available wherever you do get your audio content. Thank you very much for watching. Do stay safe. From all the late team here, thank you for watching again. And good night and do take care. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.